The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode number 46. Captain DeBridge. Spock here. Make it so. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings of all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're looking back. We're discussing Star Trek Discovery's second season. It's season two. Looking back at how how did it progress? What were our expectations? What do we look forward to the future? So joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going, Dom? Very well. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So, folks, uh, before we begin, as usual, remember to like The Secrets of Star Trek on Facebook at facebook.com slash starquestmedia. Retweet us on Twitter. We were at SQPN. And be sure to leave us comments in those places so that we can uh, not only get your feedback, but also help spread the news about the, the show. And people would like to subscribe and join this discussion, which is a lot of fun. So let's jump right into this. So we want Discovery's second season was a uh, a bit of a, a departure in some ways. And from the from the behind the scenes point of view, they they decided to make some changes to how they did things. One of the things was this new story arc that they did. They, I think there was an intentional move to lighten it a bit. It, the last <laughs> season, a bit. Yeah. Last season yeah. was a bit heavy. This season was less so we had. So let's talk about this. So we have these. The seven signals was the whole th- this the whole uh, season. We had the time suit, this time traveler, the red angel, and we had this AI that took over Section Thirty One. I mean, this the, he was the main antagonist of of this season. So, what did you think about that in general? Just this story arc in general for for a choice of how did it work out? over the course of all of these episodes. Well, you know, one thing I will will say is, although they were dealing with time travel, I'm glad they didn't try to go for the time reboot. You know, that would have been such an easy trap for them because I, I will have to say that I felt like the ultimate story arc was, our fans aren't happy with me because we changed continuity, so let's change it back. I mean, that was the ultimate arc of the whole story that this whole thing with the Red Angel and the time travel and the signals and all that was here's a path we're going to use to connect season one of Discovery to the TOS. Right. That how to deal with the things that weren't in the original series like spore drives and and that sort of stuff. Right. And that's why and that's why as we went through the, the series, we had these little hints of things that were. Oh, this is going to change now. This, you know, the the idea with the holographic communications, like we talked about last episode, uh, the holographic communications being ripped out of the Enterprise and will never be used again. (laughs) Right, right. Which is why we never saw it on TOS. Yeah, and that so that was that seemed to be a big theme this season was dealing with these objections that fans had in the first season to the continuity issues between 
you know, essentially between Enterprise and the original mm-hmm. series. Discovery. No, I mean about the Enterprise, series. The, the series Enterprise. I mean, we so this takes oh. place in that gap, and there was a sort of discontinuity we with this series and what we know from the original series of certain elements. I mean, obviously the look and feel is going to be different because we're not making, we've talked about this before. We're not making a TV show in the sixties. So we're, we're going to update the tech to reflect the time we live in today and appeal to a a current audience. So, okay. But the other things that got changed from the first season, like spore drive, et cetera, they decided to deal with that. The other thing they decided to do was to make more of an explicit connection by bringing in familiar characters from the original series most notably Spock and Pike and, and some of the others. Uh, and we'll, we'll get into talking about them more in depth in a bit, but just in general, bringing them in. And having the Enterprise play a prominent role within the, the series. I thought that the overall, I, I, you know, there's sort of a meta level of them addressing fan concerns from the previous series. And I think they needed to do some of that. And I think they did some of that well. I think the addition of Pike and Spock to this season ultimately helped them, even though we it took felt watching it in real time, it felt like they took too long getting to Spock. But in binge mode afterwards, that may not be a problem. But um, uh, Pike was the breakout character this season. Clearly, oh, absolutely. he was he was awesome. Anson Mount owns that role now, as far as I'm concerned. He's played it far longer than anyone else has of all the actors who've played Pike, of which there are at least three others. And um, and he was just a breath of fresh air. He was really great. In I think that some of the other things they did to address fan concerns, like toning down the cussing from season one was good. Lightening it up a little was good. I think other things, they just went way too far in addressing fan concerns. They didn't need to rip. They didn't need to do, explain why the we never saw holograms on the Enterprise in the original series. They didn't need to explain why Spock never mentioned Michael on screen in the original series. That's just juvenile. I mean, just go with it, guys. It's not a big deal. Um, But uh, in terms of the story itself, I liked the elements of the story. I liked the fact that we built up to an a to a serious AI crisis. We've never had that on Star Trek before when we've had AI crises before. It's like just in a single episode like the ultimate computer. Um, I like that it was a multi, I, I, you know, I like big stories. So I like the fact that it's a season long arc. I like the fact time travel was involved. I like time travel stories. So I like those basic elements. I liked many of the characters and the, the emotional beats in their stories. I like dialogue that we'll talk about. The special effects, of course, were great. What I didn't like on the story level was, was the plot holes. Plot is very important to me. It's one of the key things and maybe the key thing I look for. And on the execution level of the story, even though I liked elements that it involved and I liked exploring those, I think there were loads of plot holes. And I'm not happy about that. One of the things I find interesting about this season is how you know the, the ultimate antagonist turned out to be this AI, but we don't even get to that AI until halfway through the season just like we like we talked about we didn't even see spock until halfway through the season he was an off-screen presence the whole time the the original antagonist was you know as far as we knew the red angel that they kept pursuing throughout the season uh so it was very interesting that we we had this 
this this dichotomy within the the, the plot, and also every episode, uh, which is different from the first season, ha- was pushing this arc forward. There were no standalone episodes in this. Nothing that didn't have to do with the overall arc. Am, am I right? Am I? Am I yep. missing anything? I mean, everything yeah, no, had to do with it. In, in the first season, we had a couple that could have been uh, semi-standalone. Like the the Harry Mud stuff. Right, exactly. And uh, the the planet where Saru and Burnham went and Saru went crazy, that, that one too. Uh, that was a bit of a standalone yeah, as well. A, a bit, although it was also tied in. Yeah, but the main, yeah, the, there, was, there was always a, a thread that connecting it, but... This one, everything was tightly connected to the. There was no, there was no digressions. Put it that way. From that, so it was, I thought that was interesting as well. One of the things, the huge elements they introduced here was Section Thirty One. That was a a new element, something that fans were familiar with. And uh, uh, Kurtzman, Alex Kurtzman, who is the showrunner, he's in charge of all things Star Trek at CBS. Uh, in an interview, and I'll put the links in the show notes to the to the interview we had with the uh, Hollywood Reporter. I think it was. He says, if you're a fan of Deep Space Nine, you've probably spent the past two years saying, what the heck are they doing with Section 31? That's nothing like the Section 31 we know. And he says, that's exactly right. In Deep Space Nine, they didn't have badges or ships. They're an underground organization. What you see on Discovery in our upcoming show with Michelle Yeoh is how Section 31 became that organization and why it was so underground by the time Deep Space Nine comes around. So it was an interesting difference. Yeah, they did mention, uh, you know, Section 31 was mentioned in season one. You know, you saw the security guys all in black with the black badges and, oh, that's Section 31. And that's literally where they left it. Right. At the you very know, end of the season. Yeah. And th- now this this year, obviously, or this season now, they, they, they made him a prominent part of the story, so to speak. Yeah. And I don't have a problem with it being different. This is one of the things that contemporary fandom has online. I don't know that it's different in some ways than fandom in the past, because there's always been a sharply negative element to fandom. Like when the next generation came out, the initial reaction from some fans was very negative because it's like, this is not Kirk, Spock and McCoy. What are you doing? But I I don't have a problem. The showrunners have always made it clear we are honoring existing canon. We will eventually sync up with it. Any differences are cosmetic. And so, yeah, they they know what they're doing with Section 31. It is different now, but organizations change over time. Same thing. As soon as they introduce the spore drive, I said, well, something has to happen to why they can't use that in the future. They'll eventually get there. And, you know, they they've had any number of ways of nixing the spore drive. And right now it's off in the future, but they could bring it back and then nix it some other way. So I'm I'm fine with that. I did. I did like what they did with Section Thirty One. It still feels, even though it's not an underground organization, it still felt morally ambiguous at times. Uh, that that still had that slightly sinister, you know, a uh, dark, you know, intelligence agency feel to it. So NSA, you know, C, you know, um, that those kind of CIA, those kind of organizations, but kind of a little more darker tone. What One thing some people may wonder, well, <clears throat> how could an organization like this go underground? Well, when we know about it in Deep Space Nine's era is basically 100 years after this. Name the U.S. intelligence service from 100 years ago. <laughs> Mo- most people will not be able to do that. Uh, wasn't that in Wild Wild West? 
Yeah. <laughs> no, it was Briscoe County Junior. Oh, okay. okay, okay yeah. They rode around on the on the railroad cars. Yeah. So that so Section Thirty One was such a big part of this that they they're making to a, a series on its own. So it, uh, people are interested in in more from this. It makes interesting stories. No, and, and I look forward to yeah. that. That looks kind of interesting. Speaking of uh, other series, you know, one thing I did like is they made an effort for at least two explicitly and a third clearly to bring in the short tracks. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. You know, so we had Poe. She comes back at the end. We have uh, Saru's sister and family and, and his home planet comes in as part of it. The Kelpians. Yep. And we and we've we've speculated that Calypso will be a part of season three. It's right. at least related to season three thematically. Yeah. yeah, it's to be difficult because in that the a the the ship's computer had a thousand years to evolve, whereas if they're traveling forward in time a thousand years, it doesn't. So, yeah, we'll we'll have to see how that goes if that ever comes up. I'd have to go back and look at the dialogue again to say, has she been alone for a thousand years or is she just a thousand years from her original time? Right. right. Remarkably well preserved for a thousand years. That's for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, that that will play into the kind of the speculation for what we're thinking for season three later, because I've got a little bit about that. So, OK, notes. We have notes. <laughs> we have notes. So uh, one of the big things that was predicted was that this season we were told that the topic of faith would be more prominent. And then we were told things had been rewritten a little bit because people got a little uh, antsy about the idea of, of faith being prominent in a series. Yeah, what was more wimpiness now. Kurtzman in that Hollywood Reporter interview kind of finesses it saying, oh, yeah, faith is a theme in this. It's but it ends up being like faith in yourself. And Michael has to take this leap of faith in herself and stuff. And it's like, no, there's an overall design she's following and she's not in control of it. I I thought that was him kind of retconning the retcon a little bit. Mm-hmm. That was a bit of a spin. Yeah, he 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 said uh, faith was never about picking on religion as much as it was about Faith in each other and in themselves. Yeah, but then they had a lot of episodes that had, you know, presenting faith as false. You know, the Terralesium syncretic religion, the the Kelpian faith being a false faith and things like that. I didn't take I didn't take them. I mean, the 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 Kelpian thing, that is a false faith. But I didn't take the other faith things they did as being picking on religion so much as as talking about it, but not fully committing to talking about it. Uh, and we'll talk about the, the Pike's faith as when we get to talking about his character, because it's such a uh, interesting part of it. Uh, but uh, yeah, so the, those are the, the big story arc aspects of it. There's, is there a more to the, is there anything else in the story arc that you would want to bring out from this? Uh, you know, we had the whole, the time suit and the seven signals, and we've kind of talked about those a lot as we've gone through. But I don't know if there's anything from a big picture point of view you wanted to mention on that arc. Just on the on the plot level, I, I just to reiterate, I think there were a lot of plot holes. We don't know why the seven signals were displayed at the beginning other than to tell us there are going to be seven signals. We don't know how the suit made them. They never explain that. They build up control to the point that control what does it need the sphere data for? It is so powerful. It's, I mean, it's taken down Starfleet communications and it's got a fleet of 30 ships it's, uh, with thousands of drones that it's controlling. What does it need? 
at this point. What does it need from the sphere data? Yeah, to make itself more powerful. Why take the crew, the entire crew of the Discovery into the future when you can just send the ship? Why not talk to the AI and explain the need of the current situation? The sphere data AI, yes. This The sphere data. Yeah, there's there's all kinds of plot holes in this. And so I'll shut up about them. Having <laughs> <mentioned>. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about the characters. The we'll, you'll start at the top with the our lead for the series, Michael Burnham. She's she's no longer uh, season one. She was the the this favored traitor who started a war. In this at the beginning of this season, she's a hero. She's back reinstated into Starfleet. She's a commander on board Discovery, and we explore her Vulcan foster family and her relationship with Spock. That's that's the big focus for this character this season. That and a little bit about her relationship with Ash Tyler, but not a whole lot here. Mm-hmm. We also we also get an exploration of her psychology, of her tendency to take all responsibility on herself as a character flaw. Yeah. So, what did you think of the character of Michael this season? I think they definitely tried to they tried to ramp up her human side, if you will. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, very much much more emotional than she was during season one. Much, uh, you know, the, the tears flowed a lot more freely in this one. Less Vulcan. Yeah. Yeah. Not mm-hmm. not the Vulcan training that she had received and things like that. Uh, interestingly, a parallel between her and Spock in, in that. The whole relationship with Spock thing. I, I mean, they grew up together. They were like half brother, half sister in a sense. I mean, she was like 12 or 13. So she was already you know, young adult or adolescent in, in, in that sense, the relationship seemed it it didn't seem right to me somehow. It, it didn't seem authentic, uh, maybe over the top at times, uh, a little distant at others. It was a I mean, it's tricky, but it just did something. Well, didn't feel right. I uh, one of the things that didn't feel right is the fact they hadn't spoken in all these years, but that was chalked up to Spock that he didn't want to talk to her. And that's actually consistent with what we know about Spock. He didn't talk to Sarak for years. It does feel unnatural, but it's also consistent with what they've established about Spock. I thought that once they eventually get back together, I enjoyed seeing them as as interacting. Once they finally yep. patch up their relationship and Spock gets over his snit, I I enjoy the I enjoy seeing them together as 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 sibs. So let's let's talk a little bit about Saru. Uh, of, of all the characters, he probably had the biggest change from his season one character. He's no longer craven, fearful, <laughs> cowardly lion, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Kelpian. He goes through this transformation, and he's much more decisive, strong leader. You know, in in season one, he's looking up uh, what great Starfleet captains of the past and how do they do it. And now, you know, he's writing the book in a sense. What do you think about this yeah. this second season, Saru? Do you like him more, better? Yeah, I like I like who they developed him in him into. Um, it was an interesting perspective of having the prey intelligent prey species as a you know first officer on this ship to have kind of that pacifistic and fear fear driven uh, reaction yeah. fear driven uh reaction uh response to everything I, I think that was that was that was an interesting thing to explore but i also like to you know to see how they developed it I, I think they did a good job on developing that character into the more confident more willing to take the risks willing to take the chances 
Yeah, and, and, and kind of him learning who he himself is now after this change. I, I had a bunch of criticisms of how they handled the whole Kelpian situation. I think they welched on the on w- their initial description of the Kaminar ecosystem where everything is stratified into predator and prey. They didn't explore that. Uh, that's not consistent with the picture they eventually painted for us. I thought Saru, frankly, was a little more interesting when he was driven by fear and having to compensate for that. The his transformation to being more confident, I thought, was interesting. I hate the fiery things out of his head now, though, where instead of his threat ganglia, he can fire needles out of his head. We only saw that once or did they do that more than once? No, he, they did once. it yeah. once. Okay. But but he, I assume he can do that again. I assume if you've got a weapon built into your biology, it's not a once in a lifetime thing. You're not a bee. So, <laughs> yeah. The temptation, the question for me, I mean, transforming him to where he doesn't have the fear thing is fine. I mean, it's I'm okay with it. But my concern is, where do they go from here? Because either he's now I mean, once he makes that transformation, there's going to be a tendency for him to overreact and to go too aggressive. And then he needs to learn to find balance. And that's the natural character arc. Well, they gestured early on at him going too far. And then he found balance in this season. So he's either already achieved integration as a character, in which case it's not obvious where his character is going to go in the future, or next season he's going to have a bigger flirtation with his aggressive side and find balance on the other side of that. And I'm not particularly interested in seeing an irrationally aggressive Saru. I like Saru who's rational and Even when he was being hyper aggressive this season, I didn't like it. There was some hinting uh, as the season was coming to a close that there's not a settled idea of who is going to be captain of Discovery, whether it'll be Burnham or Saru. (laughs) Maybe Giorgio is going to throw in her hat because she'll be, of course, (laughs) she's the empress and senior of them all or uh, who knows. But yeah, we'll talk about that in the prediction section. Yeah. Uh, uh, So that is so Saru's. Saru's transformation was interesting. Uh, yeah, I think in some ways it makes him a little less interesting, but it smooths out some of the things I found annoying, which was that tendency to kind of default to fear and run away, mm. which it made him a little predictable in certain scenes, uh, especially last season and early this season. And I like the it's less, less predictable. So I did like that. All right. So uh, Spock, the, the, that was... Spock was probably the the character most anticipated by fans as the season started. He's the one of the most beloved of all characters in all sci-fi. And we worried. We worried early on that making a Spock who's crazy and irrational, fans would react against that. We'd be unhappy that we, they were treating our favorite character bad. Did they, did they save themselves from that? Or do you think fans... Uh, are you happy with how Spock ended up? Uh, put it that way. We'll see... If we think fans in general would be, what do you think? I think they started to come back to it. Uh, and immediately again, you know, I don't have quite the experience with TOS as Jimmy does. And, and, um, but, um, I think they've started to, they started towards the end, started to pull him back to where he should be, uh, or where, where people know him. 
I, I did. I, I think I remember commenting on one of the, the first episodes where we did finally see Spock. It's like, great. You know, they, they take this b- beloved character and they make him completely insane and possibly even a murderer. Yeah, that's going to sit well with certain fans. <laughs> right. And they did pull that back. I mean, they, they did a good job. The, the, the episode on, on Telospore pulled a lot of that back, you know, by giving his sanity back, basically helping him get his, his thoughts straight, literally. I, I thought that they did take some risks there, especially early on. I don't, uh, my criticism is not what they did with the, where they put the character. I think it was fine. Actually, by the end of this season, I think we have a very mature, integrated Spock that is very much like the way Spock ends up, say, in the movie era. And you could even say, okay, well, the reason is he's connected with Burnham, who is his balance. But then he loses Burnham and ha- and we see him reconnecting with his humanity over the course of the original series so that by the time of the movies, he's he can function using Kirk and McCoy as an equivalent of Burnham. And he finds his balance again at that point. So I thought that was interesting. I also found it interesting. He's only a lieutenant here. He's not Mr. Super competent in charge of everything when Kirk's not around. That was interesting to see. I, in general, I liked Spock I, I, in this series. I thought they, they, I, I would have liked to see more of him. What I think didn't work as well was on the plot level. I don't see why Spock questioned his sanity as much as he did when he's clearly not insane. And then he freaked out when the vision thing, when the, his vision of the seven signals became true. I don't know why the, uh, Talosians needed to reintegrate him, and I don't know why his. I, I like the fact he's dyslexic. That's cool. I like the point. You can be dyslexic and really smart. I mean, that rings to my personal experience. Uh, you know, because I'm dyslexic too. But the what I didn't think made any sense was this whole thing about his dyslexia is why he's the only person that Michael's mom can relate to, even partially with the time issues involved when the audience has absolutely no trouble processing. This is a time travel story. Right. Yeah. Th- that's the thing is when you, when you say, Oh, no one, but this, this one person could possibly understand this. Well, but except you have to make it understandable to the audience. So yeah, uh, yeah. I agree with much of what both of you said uh, on the level of the acting of Spock. I know that Ethan Peck said he, he did not try to ape Leonard Nimoy, but that he did spend a lot of time trying to get cadences and other aspects of Nimoy's performance down. I just, I, I never saw him as Nimoy. I thought um, Zach Quinto did a much better job as another Spock than Ethan Peck. Uh, not which isn't to say I dislike this character. Uh, I think it, he did fine, but he just never really felt like this is this is Spock from from TOS. It just never felt like that to me. I think he's aping Leonard Nimoy less than uh, Zachary Quinto did. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it, kind of, it kind of brings a question, though, of how, how much really would it have changed things if this would have been a different Vulcan? It, it could some, have been. Somebody we don't know that we have no connection to. Well, it would have changed the Pike and the Enterprise. That's for sure, because uh, there was no other Vulcan uh, that, we, that know we know of. of. I mean, and Spock would have been on the Enterprise, so that might have that would have been an issue. But you're right; like he could have been any other Vulcan with any other half sister who was human, you know, foster sister that was human, not half sister. 
but he's half human too, and he's exploring the integration of his human and his Vulcan sides here. That wouldn't apply to another Vulcan. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah. I just my 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 point is that you know I wonder if they wrote themselves into a trap from the very beginning by making Michael the the, the sister. adopted sister of Spock. Right from the first. I I think I think from the beginning when they decided to make her the foster sister of Spock from the first season I I I felt weird about that like there's sometimes these shows that want to do origin stories they want to they want to be cute about how much things are connected to things we already know and I think sometimes the the impulse is often overdone and I I thought that from the beginning yeah there's I mean what my reaction was whoa that's a coincidence that <clears throat> that she is you know Spock's sister I I think they eventually explained it in an okay way, though, because Spock, I mean, Sarek, it really goes down to Sarek, and Sarek does experiment with crossing Vulcan and human things. That's why we have Spock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and so I could accept it. And then after, and I'm not going to be able to change it. My question is then how well do they execute it? And even though I think they delayed it too much in this season, especially what did Michael do that alienated Spock. Um, I think they ultimately, I like where they went with it. So I'm okay with it overall in terms of the execution. You know, when you think about it, Sark's kind of a Vulcan hippie, you know? He just, yeah, he's, he is. He's a radical. <laughs> he's way out there on the edge. Even even putting Cybok to one side, Sarek is, is <laughs> he's got a yeah, strange exactly. Vulcan family. Yeah, can we keep putting him further to the side, Cybok, like yeah. as far to the side as possible? I think Cybok <laughs> is a mopey. He's, <laughs> he's something that will never be spoken of again. Exactly. Until we have to talk about Star Trek V. A.K.A. <laughs> yeah. uh, Captain Kirk's fever dream. Right. So let's talk about Pike. Pike is the breakout character of the season, I yeah. think. Yeah. People loved Pike. People would be highly disappointed if there's not at least a return of Pike somewhere along the way, much uh, less an actual series of Pike. Alex Kurtzman the, says in that interview, the fans have been heard. Anything is possible in the world of Trek. I would love to bring back that crew more than anything. It was a huge risk for us. One of the most gratifying things to see how deeply the fans have embraced Pike's box number one in the Enterprise. The idea of getting to tell more stories with them would be a delight for all of us. And uh, Anson Mount himself uh, said that he would be open to Pike coming back, that it would require, quote unquote, creative conversation. Generally around how much is it going to cost them to get him back? <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and perhaps he has other uh, commitments. And, and family, and that sort it of sounds thing. like there's there's family concerns. There's, you know, uh, the schedule for shooting, the locations for shooting, stuff like that. So, I mean, there's it's not just money. It, it's the whole surrounding of doing a new ep, new series this intense but uh anson mount was uh i think he was great i i'd never i don't remember seeing him in other things before and i think he was great as pike like you said jimmy he is the definitive pike yeah. um he, he now we feel like you know, before kirk pike was the platonic ideal of starfleet captain as we've been told but we never got a chance to really see that and we really feel i really feel like we got to see that Captain Pike in this season. One of the things that was talked about with Pike before the season began was that Pike's faith would be an important element. And uh, he was asked, the Anson Mount was asked about this, and he had an interesting answer. He said, there are things I know about a character, and there are things I suspect. So I am as much an authority as you or anyone else. I think he grew up going to church, but I do not know what denomination. 
And then Anson Mount says, I'm Episcopalian, and I have a feeling his relationship with religion and faith is a deeply personal one. I think he's the farthest thing from an evangelical there is. I think he's like me in the sense that I'm more, the more I learn about science and the sheer vastness of the universe and quantum physics, the more faithful I become, the more faith that I have that this didn't just happen, and we're seeing a very thin sliver of what it actually is. I'm not sure what sense he's using the word evangelical there, by the way. So I, I think he's using it as as a substitute for fundamentalist. Right. That's right. what I figured. So interesting, interesting to, to hear that. Well, it's, it's, it, I love that quote about, you know, the more he learns about science and quantum physics and things like that, that he becomes more faithful because it, it's when you look at the character of Pike, you know, it says very early on, he said that his dad was a science teacher who also taught comparative religion. And it was a very confusing household. Yeah. And yet this quote kind of flips that on its head. Well, he also I think it's I think it's guaranteed he he went to church growing up because he talks about he, a cousin of his who he he never got a straight answer from except when she was in church. Right. right. So that implies he was in church to hear her give straight answers. And <laughs> so I think that's a given. It's it, the rumor was at the beginning of the season that they'd done some reshooting because in the opinion of some people, his fundamentalist Catholic faith was a problem. And I think that may be part of what the Anson Mount is responding to here. He's trying to say, no, that's not the case. That's not my vision of Pike. Kind of makes you wonder then if they did some reshooting like that, if some of that, that those scenes would ever resurface or if they're much more careful now about, you know, cut scenes to just delete them. Because, of course, they're all digital now. It's not on film to just delete them and wipe the hard drive and you never see them again. You know, it'd be interesting to see if they, they come out later as, you know, cutting cutting room floor footage. I'd love to see a discussion of, like you said, I doubt we'll ever even see it, but I would love to see a discussion of what actually got changed. I suspect it's not anything that would be shocking. I think that the, I, I, I don't think that Pike was ever written as a fundamentalist Catholic. I think he may have acknowledged religious faith a little more clearly than what we saw, but then it would be coupled with, of course, that's me. I'm not saying everyone else should, you know, have my views. Um, but then even just acknowledging personal faith sets somebody off behind the scenes who had the authority to change it. Right. I don't think, I don't think we'll see him walking into that little white church on Terralisium and genuflecting as he walks <laughs> in the door, you know? Yeah. Well, and by the second half of the season, there was a lot less, of that faith references than we had in the the first half. There were, there were even as few as they were. Except in the humanistic sense of have faith in right. something. Right. Yeah. Not, not actual religious faith. So, uh, so maybe we will see a, a, a Captain Pike enterprise series of some sort, which I would, I would, I would be, be in up favor for of that. It. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Honestly, uh, let's talk about Tilly. Tilly was the breakout character last season. People loved Tilly. Uh, we got a little, I think we got a little less Tilly this season. And that might not have been a bad thing, because I think they tried to play her as the comic relief a little bit too much, in my opinion. Uh, for an instance, she was awful central last season to the plot. I mean, she was the main character's roommate, but still, she was very central to things. She's actually still pretty central here, but it's a little more believable now that she's an actual officer. And also, 
she's not driving things or as she's not at, quite as involved as last season. I think that they found a good balance with her this time. Right. There were a couple of times where I felt like they overplayed her social awkwardness a bit where we could we could pull that back a little bit. Uh, you know, that it, it, it make me embarrassed for her a few times. Like, well, and then they they still had a couple of hints that, oh, she's going to be the greatest captain ever. You know, and it's just like, yeah, that not, mm. she's going to have to have a major character change for that to happen. She might be <laughs> right. a captain someday, but I'm not going farther than that. I don't think we got it much more. Did we? Was the whole thing with her mom this? Yes, it was this season. Very in the very beginning, her message to her mom. They didn't really work on that. We didn't develop that anymore uh, from there. Uh, so that was that was. And we had um, her and the the spore ghost uh mm-hmm. of her we, we did we did have that early on as well and but later but later in the season she she moved more to the secondary cast so i would have to kind of come up on the bridge and say something just random type character now let's talk about uh stamets and hugh in in, in one go here uh hugh was not present uh he was dead for half the season here and um stamets was a much different person this season. Like, like you know, that seems to be the theme here. He was much less of a jerk <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> overall. And, and he wasn't as pieced out as he was when he was high on spores last season. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Uh, we, we, we had a lot less play about the cost that using the spore drive had on him personally. And uh, mm-hmm. that whole thing has now sort of the spore drive is just now part of the, the background. It's, part, it's what drives the ship. And they did sort of drop the whole using the spore drive damages the spore world. Yeah, I went back and I rewatched that in preparation for this episode. And I they didn't do quite what they needed to. When May, the spore creature, tells him that their environment is being wrecked, Stamets says on screen, oh, our jumps have been wrecking your space. And then in the next episode, they they do imply, but it's way too subtle, that it's not the spore drive itself, it's the presence of of, Culp, of Culber that's causing the problem. Oh, yeah. And, and, but they don't say that clearly enough. They never repudiate explicitly the idea that it's discovery that's causing the problem. And so that's uh, something they could have fixed and should have fixed on the dialogue level because they need to in order to explain why it's okay for them to keep using the spore drive with no one objecting at all later in the season. Yeah, so it was interesting. um, The the Stamets dealing with his grief and then dealing with Hugh coming back and then Hugh struggling with I was dead and now I'm alive. I felt on just on a human level of of those characters. I thought those were interesting, uh, but we're all on record as as not being happy with ideological pushing of of certain uh, you know ideas. But but certainly on a human level, people dealing with grief and dealing with this thing that none of us really, maybe only Lazarus could ever uh, talk about. I was dead and now I'm alive. Uh, those I thought those were interesting character moments. The only only concern, only problem I have, not concern, but the only problem I kind of had with that whole plot line is there were episodes where it felt like just, oh, we got to throw something in here to advance that plot line. 
It had absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the episode. It could have been left out and it wouldn't have hurt the episode at all. We have to advance that. And maybe part of that was because they did wait till almost halfway through the season to start that plot line. And so they limited the amount of time they could actually spend on that. I don't know. I thought this was one of the least successful aspects of this season. I, I thought that of those two characters, Stamets is far more interesting. Much of the t- much of the time, I didn't mind. I, I you know he could he could be enjoyable. Hugh was not enjoyable this season. He 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 comes back and he he he, he, he complains about stuff. He's violent. He's um, I mean you know he and Ash Tyler get into the slugfest, which I didn't actually mind that because that you know made some sense. But I thought the I I thought Hugh was very one note. And then turns on a dime uh, at in the final episode, and I thought the interaction between Stamets and Culber was paint by numbers. I mean, I predicted every beat in their story before it happened. I thought it was entirely predictable. And like Father said, this feels artificial. This doesn't feel organic to me. You have you have them come back. So okay, what's how do we generate dramatic tension between these things? Well, first of all, we've got Stamets being overjoyed, so he's trying too hard, and then that that's going to push uh, Culber away, and then Culber's going to start to rethink that. But now Stamets is the one who has the problem, and then Culber's got the problem. And it just it's like a game of ping pong, where we just check in every episode or two with these characters, and one of them pats the ping pong ball to the other end of the table until finally we get the climactic dramatic exposition solution in the final episode yeah it, it, it sounded too much just as you're describing it I'm, I'm there thinking of i've heard descriptions of rom-com movies that pretty much fit that plot line where there's always the back and forth back and forth and they're missing each other and they're you know one saying it's over the other wanting to say it's i want to get married and you know back and forth back and forth you know except except even in a rom-com movie you actually see the scenes where they're pining for each other exactly here we don't even see that we see space battles and then suddenly they show up and pat the ball to the other end of the table again you know the i i i i, I agree with the, a lot of that uh there is they did avoid they did manage to avoid the opposite problem, which is what classic TNG DS9 Voyager would have done, which is maybe DS9 might have avoided it. But which is they were dead. Next episode, they're alive. Next episode, no one's talking about it. Right. <laughs> which, yep. yeah. which would have been the other, the other. I think they went like I agree with you. I think they may be too far the other direction where they they thought we have to drag this out uh, and and. But we have to, you know, we've got other things we've got to do. So let's just kind of make sure we've got little scenes to advance this in every episode. And I, 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 I did, agree. I, I do did like with Hugh how he had to kind of explore what it meant to basically be resurrected from the dead, you know, and kind of figure all this out again. You know, I, I did like that. That was a good element. That is a good element. But then he never shares any of his thinking on that with us. No, right. No. So let's talk about Ash Tyler. Vok is now definitively gone. Apparently, that so I was I was wondering about does is was that going to be a character issue where he has to Vok struggle, reasserts right or or whether he has to struggle with it? Do I become Vok again? Can that can I go back? Apparently, he can't. So uh, so let's 
I think that's that's that issue they, is settled at least for now. They basically made it so Valk is a series of memories in Ash Tyler's subconscious that will, you know, that will always be there and he can always draw on it, but will never come to the forefront. He can't unregenerate. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so what Ash's journey in this is he goes from right hand to the Chancellor, uh, where with whom he has a child, uh, a secret child. And I, and I predicted that was never going to work, and it didn't. Not only that, but he he's supposed to be dead. And now he's running around in Klingon space. He's got a Starfleet uniform. Hey, look, he's on the bridge of a, of a Klingon ship. How is this not a problem? Like, we, we, you could deal with it. But like you said, Jimmy, with a couple other things, they've got to tell us. They've got to explain to us, why is this not a problem now when it was a problem before? So that that was a problem. Um, his relationship with with uh, Burnham, um, it doesn't really go very anywhere, really. I mean, we we are told that he still has feelings for her, and she reciprocates. So we get a little advancement there, but only for the tragic breaking up at the end of the season when Michael gets thrown into the future, and he stays behind to deal with Section Thirty One. Um, I assume he's the only since uh, he I assume control must have killed almost everyone in Section 31. If this guy is the acting commander, <laughs> the most junior who they, guy <laughs> who, who they then make the commander. Yeah, he's been in this organization a few months. I, the logical thing to do would be bring in someone else from another branch of the service who's got actual credentials. Well, what, what make, does make sense to me is, is he really? human like like Volk was basically grafted into a human was is he actually Klingon that was made to biologically look human they I don't know I maybe I've missed it but I don't think they've ever explained that that they genetically engineered his DNA somehow to make him a human but he's still well he's still this could be an interesting philosophical question but he's still a Klingon agent yeah who he's has a, turned he's a mutilated Klingon who's on our side now and and now he's now he's the head of the 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 tar security division. intelligence of CIA. Yeah. yeah, essentially he's a a Russian mole who became a, the head of the CIA. Yeah, that that's not plausible. Also, he's nowhere near as assertive as the original Ash Tyler was. The last you think about last season, Ash Tyler was such a competent guy that Lorca made him security chief. Here, Ash Tyler is a whiny guy. He just he whines through much of this season, but epic beard. Yes, <laughs> I know the beard is an improvement, but the whining is not. That's right. Although I, I love, I do love the scene between uh, Ash Tyler and Pike, where uh, I can't remember exactly what's going on, but Ash Tyler takes the badge and flips it to Pike, and Pike looks as says the chair outranks the badge and throws it back. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Also, the man the man bun was pretty good when he had that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is, is a man bun ever really good? <laughs> yeah, I don't have a problem with man. I wear man buns sometime myself. <laughs> so and then our uh, I would say the breakout character from the from the primary characters uh, this season was was Philippa Giorgio, the, the Terran oh, emperor. Yeah, she um, was so much fun. Everybody loves her. Uh, I, I haven't seen anybody out there saying they they disliked her. Um, she had an- what we got in this season was a fusion of the virtuous Captain Giorgio and the wicked Empress. And and she found a balance between the two of them that was really fun to watch. Had some she had some great lines. Of course, Michelle Yeoh got to show off her her martial arts skills. And yeah, just she you, you talk about somebody who chewed up the scenery that. Oh, yeah, that was her. 
And she, so she gave this interview with uh, Newsweek, which was interesting. And she says, um, because of Michael Burnham, she's dragged into this universe where everybody's so lame as far as she's concerned. She's thinking of how she's going to take over this place from that weakling Leland. That's ingrained in her from the mirror universe. You have to be the best one. You have to take it over. You have to play these mind games. But then we see her start to change. And she's we get this bit of humanity instilled in her with Michael. She has this maternal instinct to Michael, who is not her actual daughter from the mirror universe, but who she I think I get the sense she likes better than her daughter, who is presumably dead in the mirror universe. Uh, and, and that's uh, it, it, that made an interesting character who evolved this season, probably more so than than many. I, I really I'm looking forward to this Section 31 series, mostly because they write this character so well. I really enjoyed mm-hmm. that. Well, they definitely get to got to see her maternal instincts because, you know, all the way back when they had, you know, Ash Tyler had his had his uh, son albino baby. Albino yes. baby, and they were going to beam him down to the planet. You know, she kind of, when no one's looking, she looks and her face just softens and she kind of gets that <laughs> smile. Like, and as soon as someone looks, she immediately snaps into cold and serious. That's but then right. you see that in her interaction with Michael, that same kind of maternal instinct showing up. And it may have been an acting choice on the part of Michelle Yeoh to do that. That may not have been in the script with the baby, but it was so perfect. It was so perfect. Let's move to the uh, secondary cast. We'll, uh, we'll we'll go through this fairly quickly because I don't, I want to get to our look uh, look ahead to season three. But they uh, have names now. They have names. The, we have the bridge crew is much more prominent. They're actual characters as opposed to just the part of the background. I think that was a a great choice is to is to make this to fill them out because that's one of the things that has always made Star Trek great is that the bridge crew or that family of characters interacting and working together um that, so we have that uh we had the ad- addition of uh, janet reno as the wisecracking engineer who's a lot of fun yep uh, she had some good lines uh we had sarik and amanda this and amanda had much more of a of a of a place in this she much more assertive role than i think any of the previous amandas have ever yeah ever yeah she's, she's much more self-realized in this uh, so that was good. Sarek. Uh, they pulled him know. back quite a bit, I think, in my opinion. He he had much more prominent role in season one uh, than he does in this one. And I like that they kind of pulled back somewhat like the, the connection between him and Michael, that the Katra connection or however you want to put it. Uh, they kind of pulled that back a little bit, although there was a scene where he was meditating by the Vulcan seashore and then realizes she's in trouble. Right, right. That was the the one the one return to that. Uh, Admiral Cornwell, um, who who is now daily departed, as far as we know. <laughs> oh yeah, change when times involved. Uh, she was too passive. She was just there. She was under not served well by the writing. She is a Starfleet admiral. She needs to be the adult in the room who is in charge, and she's not ever. She was part of the furniture. I mean, honestly, well, she was. I mean, you could you could argue, well, she was a counselor before she was an admiral, but still uh, she really didn't fit that role. Um, and, and there were places in season one where she did much more than she did in season two. Yeah, I mean, she was taken captive by the Klingons and tortured and had to be. Yeah, I mean, that was a much more forward role. So let's let's jump to to looking. Go ahead. You want to do I would like to add one more secondary cast. Number oh. one. 
Okay. You know, we talked about her very briefly, but I think uh, she was played well. I liked number one in this a lot. Yeah. We didn't get a lot of her, but yeah. I, I agree. I like even little things like she likes hot sauce and eats cheeseburgers. You know, that <laughs> right. was nice. The I They took her in a different direction than what fans might have expected, because originally number one was meant to be the Mr. Spock emotionless, rational one. Right. And you watch the cage. Yeah. You watch the cage, and that's how she's functioning. And then eventually, because they had to lose number one, they transferred the emotionless, logical thing to Spock. And they didn't just transfer it back to number one in this uh, season. Instead, they let her develop in a more human way to where, yeah, she is super competent, but she also can have personality quirks and show some emotion. And she's not just this flat, you know, computer personality like Majel Barrett Roddenberry did with the original number one. Right. Yeah. But there did feel like there was a continuity between the characters. It did. I did. I, I did feel that connection that this was the same character. Uh, Rebecca Romain did a good job with that. Um, so uh, do we do we want to uh, move to talking about season three or did you want to? Oh, I've got a couple of little notes on season two. So I mentioned I like a lot of the dialogue. I think they do that well here. I think they focus a lot on character moments and character arcs. I think that's very good. The one thing I didn't like was the delays in information being given, where they just arbitrarily for half a season kept raising a question and not answering it. I did not like that. I did not like uh, on the special effects level, the special effects in general were great. But there were some lapses, like when they bring Culber back from the spore dimension. They've, you know, they've already messed up the religion thing in terms of they're avoiding the word soul for some reason. And they're talking about his energy is coming back from this other dimension, but they need to make a body for him using his DNA. Well, you're just you're you're knitting together a body that's made out of energy. But you're, you've told us you're using his DNA. So if that's all you need is his DNA, then when you pattern a body after the spore energy image of him, it should look identical. And it's not. I mean, it's shaven haircuts, two bits. He's lost all the hair and all the beard that he's grown in the spore dimension. And he's got a neat haircut. It's not even like he even if they had said if they had made him come out totally bald. I could headcanon that as well. For some reason, he's got to regrow all of his hair. But they didn't. Um, I mean, he's got hair and it's a different length than it was when we saw him a few moments ago in the spore dimension. And your hair length, your exact current hair length is not programmed into your DNA. So um, that just made no sense. And it's like, guys, you're doing so well on the special effects. Can't you? I mean, I assume the reason they did that was the actor had already cut his hair, maybe, or maybe it was just stupid on their part. But that was one place where I thought the special effects fell down. Also, um, one thing that I liked, though, on the visuals of the series is we've been seeing an alien, and there's actually a couple of them now in the background, that have these huge bulbous heads. Um, and, and, and they don't have a standard face with like an eyes and a nose and a mouth. They have this much more alien looking face. It doesn't it's not human at all. And I they've never 
interacted with these people. We, I mean, we had Linus, and I liked Linus. He was an, the Saurian. He's a nice addition. He's he's very non-human. He's still a biped, but he's still very non-human. Um, and he gets to talk, and all of that was nice. He's not just a background character. These other guys, though, I'm going, what are they? And it took me a long time to figure this out, because apparently they haven't established an on-screen name for them yet. In the background notes, the initial character, originally there was just one of them, was called Osnolos, one word, O-S-N-U-L-L-O-S. And it's not clear if Osnolos is a character name or a species name. But um, if you want to look them up, if it's been driving you crazy, what are those things? Like it was driving me crazy. That's what they are. They're Osnolos. Okay. <laughs> that is, uh, that's one of the things they've done well is the, the introduction of uh, aliens uh, characters into the series, not just uh, humans. Also, something that just uh, something that also occurred to me is, you know how on now it's been pointed out that in order for everyone not to instantly turn into a pancake on the show, they have to have these inertial dampers so that when the ship accelerates or decelerates, even at relativistic speeds, people aren't squished. Um, we have a particularly vivid illustration of that fact every time they use the spore drive because the saucer section has two uh, wheels in it that spin rapidly in different directions. And there's people in there. And so so those people are obviously being protected by really, really efficient, powerful inertial dampers. So given that they've established that with a particularly powerful visual on screen, I'm going to be looking for inertial damper flaws in season three. Don't look out the window when those are on, by the way, because you're going to get really seasick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's look at season three then. And and and. We have jumped Discovery 950 years into the future. This is this is established. Alex Kurtzman in his interview with The Hollywood Reporter says, um, we are 950 years. Uh, we are now completely free of canon and we have a whole new universe to explore. That's a that's a quote from him. So not really completely free of canon. I mean, transporters are still going to be a thing and force fields are going to be a thing, but I right. know what he means. But yeah, we're not going to be stepping on other shows that have already aired, but take place in the future, uh, at least for season three. So what do you think? So, so here's my a number one prediction. The Federation is no longer there, at least not in its current form. It's the obvious dramatic choice. The Federation has either fallen completely or because you've got to generate dramatic tension. It's either fallen completely or it's been conquered or reduced to a shell of its former self. And that sets up our heroes for being for playing a major role in the future. This was actually a proposed Star Trek series some years ago. Yeah, this was actually the, the actually I think this in fact, this was brought up um, when before Discovery was announced. So. Uh, it was an undeveloped Star Trek spinoff to reduce by Brian Singer, uh, so who was originally brought in to produce a new Star Trek series set in the year 3000. So the show was to chronicle a period of decline and rebirth for, United Feder for the United Federation of Planets. Humanity has become complacent. Many worlds left the Federation because of its human centric nature. Starfleet is stretched thin. Many of its ships are outdated. A new enemy called the Scourge attack and destroy ships in a colony world, et cetera, et cetera. 
The only survivor is Lieutenant Commander Alexander Kirk. I wouldn't be surprised that we get a lot of this <laughs> here. A lot of these elements brought back. It does sound a little bit like um, the other idea that Gene Roddenberry had proposed before he died. And then, of course, they produced was Andromeda, the series Andromeda. Same kind of idea that, you know, Andro the ship Andromeda was the top of the line at the height of this, this intergalactic empire. It's fallen. And oh, by the way, it's a thousand years later. And now this ship is the best that's out there because everybody else has reverted. Um, so, I mean, that's a possibility. Yeah, this was um, the proposal was dates back to 2005, 2006. So just after Enterprise uh, finished. So interesting. That would have been an interest. So the, it's an interesting idea that we would be in this future. And perhaps now that the timeline has changed, we will encounter uh, uh, Calypso, the character from Calypso um, from the short track. Funny face. Funny face. Funny right? face. Yep. Craft. Craft, yes. Uh so that would be an interesting I, I, I don't think we'll encounter him because that's he when he arrives on Discovery, it's after he 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 doesn't seem familiar with Discovery when he arrives, and it's after Discovery has been abandoned. And but we may learn seems... more about the the conflict that he's in. Right. And that that he seems almost overwhelmed by Discovery's tech. Yeah. And he de he doesn't know about Earth. Or things from the before time. So that suggests an apocalyptic event in the interim, which is what you want to do if you want to definitively say, okay, we're free of this canon stuff now. Let's just kick over the civilization that we started with. So we've got a clean playing board. Because uh, if they left the Federation in place, they'd have to honor Federation ideals and Starfleet would be a thing and all of that. So... What what has happened to Gabrielle Burnham, Michael's mom, who got sucked back into the future? Um, yeah, well, she, she presumably she's on Terralesium and doesn't have a time functional time suit anymore. I predict there will be conflict with mom in the new season. I have a list of conflicts that we can expect to see, and one of them is conflict about mom. And you know, my my other my kind of take off that is you know maybe a prediction is that it'll be a hunt for Doctor Burnham. Yeah. That it, she maybe she won't be at Terralesium. Maybe she'll be somewhere else, and they have to try to figure out what happened to her. So um, sort of similar to the hunt for Spock here. Yeah. So um, kind of going back to you know uh, whether they get a find in the future. You know, maybe I mean maybe you guys are right. Maybe it will be a where it'll be kind of a future where Discovery will actually be higher tech than what's available. But another possibility is Discovery could go from being, you know, top of the line in its century to a thousand years out of date. And so will they end up swapping out Discovery for something newer and better tech, more recent tech. So changing we end ships. Up with a new ship by the end of the season. Hmm. That would be interesting. Uh, that would mean. And that's the logical way to bring them back or a logical way to bring them back to their own time or close to their own time because they need to leave the discovery in the future because on the plot level of spore drive and also on the in-universe level because of the sphere data. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because as, as like I said, last, last week is kind of one of my predictions is the end of season three will be Pike and the enterprise coming to that last uh, red Signal. Red signal at Terralizium. And that's the crew of Discovery possibly coming back on a new Discovery 
well, to that place. Pu- the, well, the, there's a problem because that Terralisium is 51,000 light years from Federation space. And the only way they were able to get there was spore drive. So the, mm-hmm. if they leave the spore drive behind and certainly Enterprise doesn't have one. That's that, true. That's, that's a true. problem. But but we but when we are talking about a yet another ship cast cast on its own, trying to make its way home series a la Voyager. Time Voyager. Time Voyager. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm ready for a time Voyager. Well, that, again, that, that was kind of what that's one of the things I wrote is, you know, you know, are they going to deal with acclimating to being a thousand years? And again, I say a thousand. It's really you know, 930 Nine, years. Right. In the future. But are they going to acclimate to it? Are they going to integrate to that time? Or is it going to be a quantum leap storyline? Constantly trying to get home unsuccessfully. Sliders. <laughs> Sliders, Voyager, quantum leap, all kind of the same I, idea. I, I think it's going to be a Battlestar Galactica type situation. Um, I think they're, Press they're, we're not we're not going to see lots of jumping around. It's going to be because what this series is interested in is character moments and character arcs. And the logical thing to do is say, we've just ripped ourselves out of our home time. We have no personal context anymore. How do we deal with that? And the way to deal with that in, 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 in the past in Voyager would be, let's constantly be on the move, jumping around in, in time in this case. But I don't think they're going to do that. I think they're going to have, have a season at least set 930 years from now, maybe more than that. They might j- jump time zones every season. They, which was the original plan for this series, they might not. Um, but we're in the immediate next season. We're going to have people wrestling in, in, and especially the bridge crew, uh, wrestling with what does it mean to be here now, Michael, because she takes all responsibility on herself, is going to blame herself for taking the Discovery's crew into the future, even though it was their choice. There will be tension with her and Saru over who should be in command, and Giorgio may get involved in that. There will be tension between Giorgio and, well, everybody, Everyone. <laughs> but that goes without saying. Uh, by the At the end of the series, Giorgio will somehow go back in time, and that may involve Ash. It also may involve the entire crew going back in time. Um, we will also have... Michael and Giorgio continuing to develop their relationship. As Giorgio said at the end of this series, you're going to have to start trusting me eventually. Have a little faith, Michael. And we'll see that bond form between them over the course of the next season. One thing I do hope, though, talking about Michael is that they'll have much less focus on her as the central character. And I know that's going to take some changes the way they do the series. I would like to see them take it more to a traditional trek where, as we said before, it's about the entire crew. It's not just about one person. The entire crew feeds into that one person. Um, they've taken positive steps for that this season, this past season. But I'd like to see them go further that way. The, the only season that series that really did that was Deep Space Nine. And even then, we had a nominal main character, which was Benjamin Sisko. But he really retreated and the ensemble took over. And I think we're about halfway there as of this season to where Michael is not the other people have become much more prominent this season relative to Michael, like Pike, like Pike and Giorgio. Yeah. I want to see Detmer and Owo and some of those other crew get more of a role, more things going on with them. Uh, I don't remember the, uh, uh, Oh wait, uh, 
uh, Jen, the Chan, I think is his name, the uh, communications officer. Uh, we got Nahan, who's the security chief. So some of those coming forward will, should be interesting. I, I want to get Osnolis's personal story. <laughs> I want an Osnolis centric episode. I, I want an Osnolis rom com episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> by, by the way, regarding OO, apparently um, that is a nickname for her that's used by a lot of people. It's even I, in doing a rewatch or some rewatching, uh, Tilly uses it for her before Pike does. And so this is apparently her established nickname. Yeah. And Saru did it in uh, Such Sweet Sorrow Part 2 as well. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, okay. Uh, all right. So I think that about covers it. Uh, uh, do we have any other notes you wanted to, to share? Any any big highlights from season two or look ahead? Um, so, I can't find anything. Nope. So where, we, where do we go from here? Secrets of Star Trek. Uh, we're going to be going... Forward into the past. Forward into the past. We're going back in time, uh, <laughs> where, which is a whole other uh, series. But we're going to be going back and looking back at all of the Star Trek series and movies. Uh, and when new series comes out, new the Section Thirty One, the Picard series, those sorts of things, we'll be we'll be coming back to the to those, and we'll be doing you know talking about those as they come out. And uh, we'll, we'll it's uns we're uncertain yet what ex how exactly we'll do that. Will we do it week by week? Will we do it as a binge sort of thing. It really sort of depends on a lot of stuff that a lot of details that they haven't revealed about those shows yet. So that's that's still in the future. But in the meantime, we're going to be talking about original series, next gen, Voyager, TNG, Deep Space Nine, Enterprise, the movies, the animated series, and we're going to be going back to the first season season of Discovery, which we hadn't covered yet. But we're not going to be talking about this that first season of Discovery for a few months. Uh, we want to. We want to take a break. You probably want to break. <laughs> and in small doses when we do get to it. Right. We'll, We're we'll, jumping from series to series so that it's nice and mixed up. We're not going to be camped out in one series for weeks and weeks. Exactly. Exactly. So we hope you, you stick around. We we hope that uh, you let others know that we're, we're, we're doing some interesting stuff here and that should be a lot of fun. So and let us know if you have any ideas, because we can also branch out to other, other aspects of track we've talked about doing episodes on, on books. We could do episodes on the fandom, on conventions, fan films. Those are all ideas we've had. Uh, if you Galaxy Quest, one of the best Star Trek movies ever. Exactly, yeah. In fact, I think Alex Kurtzman exactly. called it one of the best Star Trek movies ever, too. Yep. So uh, we, uh, we can, we, you know, we can, we love to get your suggestions. So um, that's that. So before we, before we finish out, of course, you are vital to what we do here. All of our listeners are vital to what we do here. If it weren't for you, we wouldn't be doing it. Uh, but you all have to, have to thank some people in particular who make sure that we can do this, which is our patrons. Uh, they financially support us at StarQuest Media, and their financial support means that we can get behind these microphones and do this every week. And today we, we're going to thank Kenneth L., Chris E., Mike and Lisa S., James S., and Jonathan H., through their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give, they make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows we do at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So that's it from us. So what did you think of season two of Star Trek Discovery? What do you think is going to happen in season three? We want to hear from you. So go to sqpn.com slash Trek or to our Facebook page at uh, facebook.com slash Media. Leave us feedback there 
or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. And we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing Deep Space Nine, the Bajoran coup episodes, a three-part story Ooh. from Deep Space Nine. And that should be a lot of fun. In fact, it was when we recorded it a few months ago. <laughs> so it'll be fun for me to go back and listen to that uh, before. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, and live long and prosper. Father Corey Stika, thank you as well. Well, thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest.